You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 201 is Ivan Neville. He is a keyboardist and singer who plays many other instruments. And yes, he is related to the Neville brothers. He is the son of Aaron Neville. He has played with the Neville brothers. He was in Keith Richards' solo band. He's played with the Rolling Stones. He toured with the Spin Doctors. He's played with Soul Asylum. He backed Robbie Robertson, among many others. He's released eight albums since 1988. Half of these under the name Dumpster Funk, which is a collaborative effort that involves his cousin Ian Neville, among others. Right now, you're listening to Not Just Another Girl from his debut solo album, If My Ancestors Could See Me Now, from 1988. Today, we're talking about the songs Pass It Around from his new record, Touch My Soul, They Don't Care by Dumpster Funk from their album Dirty Word, 2013. What You Want From Me, a recording from 2002, released on the album Saturday Morning Music, which was then renamed Scrape, and Stay What You Are, featuring Aaron Neville from Thanks in 1995. We'll conclude by listening to Hey All Together, the single from that new solo album, Touch My Soul. For more information, please see IvanNevilleMusic.com and DumpStuffFunk.com. That's funk with a PH, of course. For more about this podcast, see NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. And to support the effort, which will get you my detailed episode notes and an ad-free feed, go to Patreon.com slash NakedlyExaminedMusic. So I will play a little bit of Not Just Another Girl from your first solo album, If My Ancestors Could See Me Now, 1988. We're going to get pretty quickly to the new thing. Do we want to say a little about the journey from there to here, that you've only had a handful of solo albums spaced all over these many years because you do so many other projects, and then Dumpster Funk being the, that's your main gigging thing right now is Dumpster Funk? Is that yeah, right? Yeah, 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 Dumpster Funk. That's my main gig. Which, you know, I think this new solo album, though it has certainly still has funk elements in it, has more in common. I don't know. It seems something more personal about most of your songwriting on your solo albums than a lot of the Dumpster Funk songs. The one that we're actually going to talk about today, I think, is an exception to that. But there's a lot of sort of James Brown, make the room dance around. Like, there's something kind of very utilitarian. Right, right, right. Now, this, yeah, Dumpster Funk is definitely a funkier version of my expressions, you know, and within a group with my friends that are, in that band. Funny thing is, those guys are also playing on the new record too, but it's in a different context. You know, it's in the confines of me mostly developing the material on my own initially with the songwriting. And you saying that it does connect more. The songwriting does connect a lot to my earlier, my other solo records, the Ancestors record, and then my other couple of things that I put out, Scrape being one of them in a record called Thanks. I don't really consciously try to go in a different direction it just kind of naturally happens like that and you a lot of the songs on my solo records they usually are born they start out most of the time at the piano Mm -hmm. which dumpster funk music doesn't start out like that dumpster funk music starts with the groove first usually so why now were these songs for your solo album were these building up over the last decade or is this just no they all came about over the last three or four years should we blame the pandemic is that (laughs) partly during the pandemic i got inspired to write one standalone song the song hey all together that song came to me out of nowhere i was seeing how divided people were starting to to act and behave as a country politics and and racial divide and social injustices and things of that nature all kind of culminating in this in this idea for a song that 
I was thinking about when I was growing up, how neighborly people were. In my neighborhood, people would gesture to one another. Hey, how you doing? Hey, hey. People would acknowledge one another walking along on the sidewalk. When you counter another human being, whether you knew them or not, you would at least give a head nod of acknowledgement. Oh, hey, how you doing? Whereas, you know, I mean, I remember the first time I went to New York and everybody was busy in the hustle and bustle of life. And people just walk by one another and nobody looked anybody in the eye. And, you know, I, I know that people are busy with their own stuff. But then it occurred to me that how divided we seemed. I'd like to believe that we have more in common than we care to admit. Best friends have become enemies because of their political belief. I think we could use a little bit more camaraderie and a little bit more focusing on our similarities. It would be a good thing, a good start. So I came up with the idea for the song, Hey All Together. I wasn't trying to do an album. I just had an idea for one song. And then intentionally wanted to get some people on it. Like I wanted to get some recognizable voices to sing with me. And I ended up getting my dad, the Aaron Neville, mm -hmm. and a close friend who I've played with over the years, the Miss Bonnie Raitt. And another gentleman who's uh, probably one of the most recognizable voices of our generation is Mr. Michael McDonald. And I got all of them on this one song. And that was pretty cool. And it turned out that that song got a little bit of buzz within a few few friends and a few people that have something to do with a, an independent label that wanted uh, that was working with Dumpster Funk, as a matter of fact, and was talking to Dumpster Funk about doing a record. And in turn, I was given the opportunity to do a solo record based on that one song. So now I've got to come up with a record's worth of material. So this all kind of came to fruition, uh, you know, a few years ago based on that one song. And then now you're talking in the pandemic and, and thereafter, I got to come up with the rest of this material for, for a full, uh, full album, which I fortunately I did. So, hey, all together, I'm going to put at the very end of the episode. So people need to stick around and listen to everything. Uh, so the song I picked that we're going to play in a second off this was basically the closer, Pass It Around, which, you know, it's sort of a ballad. It's not the close. There's a piano instrumental after it, but it's basically the big choral finale. We could talk about that. And it's a special song to me. I had eight songs completed. And I needed two more pieces. And I came up with Pass It All Around and the instrumental piece at the end. Now, Pass It All Around came first uh, out of the two. I had run into like a roadblock and I couldn't come up with anything. And I was like, no ideas flowing. And I was thinking, would I have writer's block, a mental block? And then I, I read something somewhere and someone said, there's no such thing as writer's block. There's just a time to talk and there's a time to listen. And I took that to heart. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to quiet down and listen. And then a message came to me out of nowhere. And it was the song, Pass It All Around. And that kind of called me. I mean, I guess the idea of the song, I was maybe expressing some similar messages in other songs on this record. It's basically was about, you know, the idea of remaining teachable. I've been around for a while and I've, I've done a few things. And the older I get, the more I realize how little I know and how, how eager I am to be open to learn the next thing that there is to, that comes my way. And so that was the initial thought on Pass It All Around. So, you know, okay, be open to new ideas. And then 
the idea of getting to wake up another day, you know, and then, okay, so what do I do with the blessing of having another day? You know what? I figure out how to be of help to someone else. I could be more productive if I'm thinking along those lines. I look at life as moments as you're in this journey and we get moments and we have moments that are great, moments that are good, moments that are bad, but it kind of somehow evens itself out if you just allow them to happen and be in acceptance of where your journey takes you. And so that's basically, I'm going to, I'm going to speak the lyric. It says, keep learning and love along the way. Keep giving when you get another day. Keep trying when you're feeling down. Keep loving and pass it all around. It's kind of hokey, but it's real. I think if the normal average person would just be in acceptance of, of what life is and and accept it and try to just do better each day you get, you know, it couldn't hurt. A new day, another start. Just listen closely and trust your heart. Mistakes are made to wake you up. Might trip and fall and get back up. Keep learning and love along the way. Keep giving when you get another day. Keep trying. When you're feeling down, keep loving and pass it all around. All the gains and times we lost, roads and rivers. Here to where we are—a perfect place for us to start. Keep learning and love along the way. Keep giving when you get another day. Keep trying when you're feeling down. Keep loving. Keep trying when 
So I can see how this musical motif might come out of a place of stillness, of listening. I mean, is this the kind of thing that you're writing when you sit, you know, this basic riff that propels a song, that your hands are just writing with the keyboard or that you're walking around and these ideas are starting to form in your head before the instrument even enters the picture? There was a lot of spontaneity to do with that song in particular, because I came in with the piano movement initially. And then right away, something came up lyrically. And then I came in with the B section and that part just kind of rose itself. I had a little help with a few lyrics. A friend of mine by the name of Chris Jacobs. I sent him what I had so far at that point. And I said, I may maybe need a, a line or two to complete a third verse, perhaps. And he sent me a few lines and I looked at those and, I, and it fit. And I tweaked a word here, a word there, and it became the song. And I had some young ladies come and sing on that song as well, which kind of made it special. My engineer friend, Paulie, found a loop. I wanted to find a loop that had a earthiness to it. And we found some little drummy thing that we uh, incorporated and made that the bed of what was the foundation of the rhythm of the song. I love that, that right at the beginning, that it's like there's a little record scratch sound or whatever that's like serving the snare part at first. Yes, that was a part of, that was in the loop that we found. And also we edited the record scratch and put it in time because the record scratch wasn't even originally in time. We put it in time. Yeah, just I think it's the fact, but dun, dun dun to scratch like it's it's an offbeat. It's not even the snare hit. So this bridge, which I feel like is the find the beauty in your pain, was that a ladder addition? Because that sort of really brings it home for me that little bit. That lyric came a little bit after some of the other lyrics had been written, and I incorporated the bridge in there. It wasn't too much later. I mean, I had kind of completed a lot of the song, and then I did come up with the bridge. 
And that was definitely speaking about, and an extension of that idea is, is the last song called Beautiful Tears. And that's an idea of, it's a similar concept in the idea of finding beauty in the pain. Miracle Inside the Ram, Finding Beauty in the Pain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other thing about the arrangement, like it keeps threatening to open up into a big power ballad because the drums, you know, that, that, yeah, that you have these tom rolls, but then it's. I never put the backbeat. I never put the backbeat in consistently until the vamp where I put a shaker. We put a shaker. We have a tambourine hitting on every other four, I believe, or something like that. On the four, we put the tambourine and we put a snare drum. But it wasn't like every, it wasn't on the twos. It was just on the fours. If this had been on the 1988 album, like I don't think giant reverb drums. Yeah, no, it would have come in. It would have come in. And all the, you know, you know, my friend, I'm fortunate to say this, that the drummer that played on Ancestors happened to be Jeff Picaro, one of my favorite drummers ever. And I, I was just recently texting with one of the guys, David Page. Mm-hmm. From Toto, because Jeff, I think it was the anniversary of Jeff's, uh, the date of his, he passed in August, I think August the 5th of 1992. I cherish the time that I spent with that guy, Jeff Picaro, and he was an amazing drummer. But it definitely would have been some backbeats. Yeah, certainly in the 80s, most stories I hear about recording in that it's a different environment than the home. You get a big time producer and you get all this technology that you would not have available. Now, like, was any of this home recorded or it's still kind of basically the same? You go into the professional studio and you're paying by the hour and you got to rush and you got to get it. No. No, well, no, it wasn't like that. But it, it, I, basically in my house, I don't have a big time recording facility in here, but I have a piano room. I have a piano in my hallway and I have a piano in the, in the sunroom. And the sunroom is where I wrote most of the pieces. And it's just a room with a bunch of pictures, family pictures and, and some plants. And I sit in there and I sat in there and I recorded uh, piano pieces on my phone on voice memo. And then I would go to the studio, which when I started the early stages of this project, I was literally five minutes from my house. I go to the and there was a studio in a house and we go in there and we'd start. And I used this thing called a Maestro Rhythm King. It was a little beatbox thing that uh, you might have heard on some Sly Stone records and a few. Uh, yeah, Sly used it a lot. There was a song by a guy named Timmy Thomas called Why Can't We Live Together? It's mostly organ and one of these little rhythm machines. And I used that to build these songs with. I use it on at least four songs. Even though it's electronic, that's still old school because you're not just using the click track or the MIDI, th- or, you know, whatever it is that's built into the software. When you do the rhythm, rhythm kings, I would sync it to some degree and get it in, a, in, a, in somewhat of a grid. But then I'd play live drums. I'd have De- my friend Devin come over and play live drums to it. And so, you know, I wanted to get the best of both worlds with the technology thing. And I wanted to use enough of it to utilize what you can do in this day and age. But I wanted it to have some soulfulness and some movement and stuff like that. Like, so most of my keyboard playing, I didn't like quantize. I mean, all my playing is, is how I played it. So the chorus where the choir actually comes in, after this, we're going to play a dumpster funk one, which has a similar repeating thing at the end. But in that, the vocalists just start going gospel, that it's you and your your other singer. Whereas here, it stays pretty subdued, just like you don't introduce the big drums. The vocals don't, you know, go crazy there. 
after the fact, I was thinking, uh, should I have sung more stuff in the vamp? And then when I listened to it, I, I like what it did. I like that fact that when I play it live and I can add a few things that's not on the recording, I have fun with that. But I like that it kind of streamed. I kept it kind of basic. And those girls singing on it had a beautiful thing. Because I initially sang some parts myself. I sang two or three harmony parts and I put it throughout the song. And then I had the girls sing over that. And it made it sound a little bigger. I dig that you dug those drum rolls, those fills. Because I had my, my drummer, Devin Trustlayer, to come in there with me. I says, what do you hear on this? And this is what he heard. He heard it not coming in with a backbeat and knee, and I was like, I was on the same page. Save it up to let it go. Because I could hear it coming in with a backbeat, but I mean, you know, I like the way it breathes, the way it's doing what it's doing. So we just left it like that. And are the horn blasts a sample there? Because I can't see. No, those are the trumpet players, the trumpet. That's actually John Michael Bradford. And the funny thing was he came into the studio. I was in there listening. I was having him come there to play on something else, which we never got to. The thing that I was going to have him play on, I never put a trumpet on that song. And he ended up, this song was, was up and I was listening to it. I was developing it. And we had, I think we had just done the vocals and I had, I think uh, uh, Tony had just put a bass on it. And so he, he, I said, yeah, let's put this little trumpet thing. Let's try something. And we came up with that. little I couldn't see like calling somebody in saying, Hey, I've got four notes. Do you want to play four notes? Yeah. Right. No, it's funny. We came up with the party, did a harmony to it and he maybe doubled it. And that was it. And funny thing was there was an earlier mix of the song where the engineer made it sound really, really like it was a sample of some kind. I says, no, I want it. I want it to sound more like regular puppets. We can grease it up a little bit and we could, you know, gloss it up slightly, but I still want you to be able to be able to hear. Okay. That's, is that a trumpet? And that's not it. Cause I could play that on a keyboard. I don't want it to sound like a keyboard. The other thing, you know, so you got your piano going throughout and then, but you have coming in and out the fill instrument that is this throbbing synth. This wow, wow, like it's a wow, wow, it's a wow pedal going through a, a synthy sound on a, on a Nord keyboard that I use. And I just did a wild, wild thing on it. Okay, so I assume that was just built into the sound. But no, you're actually doing this with your foot. Because if you listen to it, there's a couple of times where it fluctuates a little bit differently. Okay, so you didn't even do it once and cut and paste. No, I played that. I played that all the way through intentionally because I wanted it to move kind of a little bit. I did add another stringy, almost Mellotron kind of part toward the end that was not in the song previously. It sounds like a, a string quartet is coming in. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a, that was a nice build. And and again, that could have just taken off if it was an 80s thing. If it was David Foster producing it, then it would end with it like, let's have everything stop and have this Eleanor Rigby thing, the strings go and, and finish the song. But yeah, you build it back just down to the same loop and the percussion and fade it out. There is actual bass on this, right? It's just... It's a real bass. And as a matter of fact, it's a bass. I turned it down low. 
because I did, I have a synth, I have a keyboard bass that's on there low that's throughout the whole song. And then I added a real bass. I had Tony Hall play a bass and we put a Mutron effect on the bass. It was totally out of character for this song to put it in We put a, Is that a, a big compressor or is that a phaser? What is a Mutron? A Mutron is like, it's something you hear in a funk record, like Bootsy Collins. That sound, we put a, I put a Mutron effect on the bass. Yeah. All right. So some kind of phase flange, something in that neighborhood. Any other thoughts about putting this together as a narrative that you've got your message to keep on learning, but then it does seem like it might be a little hard. Okay, well, how do you build to this with the lyrics and things? It sounds like that's maybe where you ran into a little like, I don't even know how to finish this. Like, you know what? I think the last, the one, the last verse, hmm. I think I like where it went. The last verse says, save it up to let it go. Sure. Save it up to let it go. Find your peace and then you'll know. And it goes to that B section. And then there's, I, I extend the B section the second time around. And where I say, keep learning, love along the way, keep giving when you get another day, keep trying when you're feeling down, keep loving and pass it all around. Then I repeat. Keep learning, love along the way. Keep giving when you get another day. Keep growing like a flower from the ground, which only happens one time in the song. And it says, keep loving and pass it all around. And that's kind of the story. Right. Yeah. I guess, I mean, like the overall energy of the song, it never explodes. It doesn't grow into a giant, like lyrically, you're letting little dribbles come out and then you get a little more in the third verse and we get a little more in the bridge, but it's, we want to keep it focused on that, on that message and not have it get too crazy. Well, let's get the second song out there. I feel like it's the dark side of this. This They Don't Care by Dumpsta Funk from 10 years ago. Any words about where you were at with Dumpsta Funk at this point? What This was your third release. Am I getting that right? They Don't Care was the third album. We had changed drummers. Raymond Weber was no longer in the band. And when we started They Don't Care, our original drummer, Raymond Weber, was still in the band. We started that groove out at Tony Hall's house. Tony's got a studio in his garage in, in Thibodeau, Louisiana. And we were out there fooling around, and we started that idea there. And then it just sat, and we had, I only had the chorus, They Don't Care About You, whatever, blah, blah. And then, and then it came back up, and then we started figuring out what we were writing about. You put your life on the line, hey, oh. You ain't get nothing in return. Yes, 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 yes. It was about protesting and things of that nature. And we were thinking, kind of, you know, about someone who, who's a hardworking person, you know, and then they're trying to take your stuff away at the end. It's like people talk about taking Social Security away and guys who go over to fight in the war and you come back home and you don't get any acknowledgement for it. Or, you know, a job well done. But what do you have to show for it? So it's basically how society kind of just takes and eats you up and you give all you got. And it was a song, it was a song, you know, about giving your life for your country and all this stuff. And who gives a shit about you?
life on the line Get nothing in return Somebody holds up a sign Wondering who's concerned Tell you everything is fine Thrown in debt that you'll never pay Nothing to show for all that you gave It's 
an organ part, obviously, you know, obviously I'm influenced by a lot of music from all over the place from the 70s and late 60s. That's obviously a nod to the who with the dun, 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 organ stuff or Manfred Mann band. Was that blinded by the light? Sure. That kind of, you know, that all of that stuff. I didn't make that up. You know what I'm saying? That idea of playing an organ like that. I mean, similar to Pass It All Around, that Pass It All Around has just this repeating piano thing that's very catchy. And this likewise has, once the guitars come in, you know, this progression that just repeats that, you know, is the is the soul of the song. You say that usually dumpster funk songs would start with the groove. This one clearly started with that lick, right? As opposed to... This was probably, this was a heavy, heavy Ivan influenced song for dumpster we used to come up with stuff and we collaborate where everybody's got an idea about something or we make a groove or tony comes up with a groove a bass and drums and we build from there well this was kind of more chord or keyboard orientated than a lot of other dumpster funk songs so it definitely had a heavy i influenced it in a big way now i haven't actually looked at the liner notes for these do you just do group publishing, group songwriting for all the dumpster funk stuff? This, well, not all of it. And a lot of it is group, you know, even collaborations. But some of them, whereas I wrote most of the words, uh, my cousin Ian, Ian actually wrote a few of these lyrics. I think in the bridge, and he's not really a lyric writer, but he wrote a few words for this song as well. And so this was a not an equal collaboration, but it kind of was in a way, but it, we kind of split it. It wasn't like an even split. Which other singer? Is it Nick Daniels that you're trading the vocals with here? That he's the the James Brown singer? <laughs> That's Nick. Nick and Tony both sing, but at parts of the song you're going back yeah, and forth yeah, between the two. Nick, that. That's Nick. Nick's Nick Nick. Nick's singing a lot of stuff in there. Yeah. Let's stop for some sponsor messages. Every day you decide who you're dressing up as. In your shirt, your jacket, your shoes, you're crafting a message to the world. And sometimes clothing's meaning can be surprising. Articles of Interest is a podcast about what we wear. It's a fashion podcast for people who are passionate about clothes and for people who think they don't care about clothes at all. Every other week, host Avery Truffleman reveals the wild stories hiding in your closet. Why do baby clothes have pockets? How did latex become taboo to wear? Can we actually know the labor conditions of garment factories? Is there such a thing as fashion separate from capitalism? Get Articles of Interest on your favorite podcast app. We started it out with the keyboards. But we're just going to take that out so you can, I mean, is that partly theatrical so you can just sing like at the start, at the point you start singing, you don't have to be holding something down. You put your life on the line. I didn't think of it like that. It just seemed appropriate at the time because there were other elements and Ian's guitar playing was very integral as well as I remember it the development of this song and how it, how it moves. We use a delay effect on the guitar and his coloring contrasted my keyboard stuff. So we kind of weave in and out with things like that. So he's doing the more chuk 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 one, but, but then you've got this, is that just a guitar that's, or is that keyboard through something? We overdubbed the keyboard and we overdubbed another guitar as well. We had at least two guitars on there. I know there's two basses in the band. Are there two basses on this? There were definitely two basses on that song. Yes. And Tony's playing the bottom one and Nick's playing a little bit on top. Okay. With a similar part. And Nick's playing with, I think, a Mutron or something like that. Yeah, the stereo separation. So you've got the more 
I wasn't sure if it was a low guitar, but yes, a second bass played in the upper register with some funky wah-wah kind of effect out of the Mutron. Is the Mutron a central part of that, that band's sound? Is that on? I would say yes. If you hear a Mutron in, in a dumpster funk song, it's not an odd thing. <laughs> Yeah, any thought about the movement to that? From the cradle to your unmarked grave, nothing to show for all that you gave. Was this written more or less, do you recall, or typically, you know, you got your basic riff and then you just sort of write it through, or is it that you've got the verse, you've got the chorus, and we now we have to connect them somehow, and that's the thing you, you know, do you remember Order These kind of came organically, and they came, and we had some of it written, and then we needed some more, and I think Ian actually came up with that line. From the cradle to your unmarked grave was one of Ian's lines. Yes. Yeah. For the lives you slave, from the cradle to your unmarked grave, there's got to be your own effort to say, they don't care about you. Yeah. And it was a combination of things we were thinking about. We were thinking about guys that maybe been lifelong military or whatever. And obviously, you know, some of those guys get benefits and things of that nature. But there are some who've given beyond the call of duty and have totally forgotten about and then we're comparing that as we're putting in that equation as well, like a, some man who worked like a civic job, maybe a mailman or whatever. And he's done his job and retired. And it, did he really get what he was supposed to get in the end? You know, is he living a decent life in retirement? How bad did he get cheated? Or is some guy living in some assisted living place dying alone? Like how bleak the song is, is a matter of how big the they the they is. Because if it's just industrial capitalism doesn't care about you and the job system is not going to pay off, like that's, and the, and the solution is, as you put at the end, is, you know, take care of your brother, take care of your sister, is community, but unmarked grave, that implies, <laughs> you know, you don't even have a brother or sister, you know, it's not just the system that's stacked against you, it's just that you got no support whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. it could be pretty bleak, you know, <laughs> so we went a little big on that one. And it gets to be like a dumpster funk song in the, I mean, not only that you have the Mutron there from the beginning, you have the big, more gospel-esque vocal yeah. trading with multiple voices flipping around, which, you know, I, I don't know, is it more natural to have that kind of thing on a song that's all about get up, get up to the front, blah, blah, you know, kind of a, a standard funk thing as opposed to this darker or is it just like gospel is dark? You know, it's okay. Well, no, it's, it, well, we figure it all comes from somewhere. It all comes from the blues at some point. So you think about blues comes from, comes from the church as well. So you combine all of that and that's what you get. You get, you know, people are excited. And that's what, when you hear gospel music and you hear a choir and you hear multiple voices, I mean, that's why we love Sly and the Family songs so much because when they would come up with songs, they would have like different people. They would have like one person sing a line and one person sing a line. And then it culminates with them all singing together. That's a big part of the dumpster funk thing. We have several guys that can sing. So a lot of times we'll trade verses and then we'll trade ad libs in the end, if need be, depending on how the song's building and stuff like that. But yeah, we love doing that stuff. Well, this is just, it's making me think about how to fit suffering into 
<laughs> happy dance music because it's essential, I think, in gospel that it's we are lowly and without God to save. You know, we're we're wretched. We try to not be really preachy, but we do have lots of messages sometimes, even in the dumpster songs. And we have like music to dance to and think to as well. You can dance and think about it, too. So well, we try not to get too preachy, but sometimes when there's a message to convey uh, to present, we want to do it. Let me play some of the uh, guitar solo. You introduce this guitar as if this is such a thick effect. This can only be just a sort of a cloud, like a keyboard pad, but it's just a more interesting one. But now that's going to be the solo instrument, is it? So that's. That's Ian, yeah. Yeah, we, we kind of tweaked that. We tried to figure out where to go with that. We didn't want just a specific or a typical guitar solo. We wanted it to have some sort of tonality that kind of stood out in a different way. And it was more like more for color as versus to a standout performance solo. It was more to color something. As a young person in the 80s, I was introduced to guitar solos like Owner of a Lonely Heart or whatever where you don't even know that it's a guitar. Like, it's just that so... Is a, no, but that, you know what? I love that one. I love that guitar solo because it's just pieces and it's got that tone. It's so killer. That's good that you picked that one up. So much harmonizer and stuff on it. Yeah, that, it's, got the, it's got the harmonizer, the, the octave divider. As the solo wraps up, the drums really take up. You got like marching band snare going through this now. Like we've added some stuff like that too, and that's we had some people come in and play on that song. I'm trying to think of who else who all played on that because that's Nikki Glaspie on drums. Mm -hmm. But we had some other guys come in. That's not even at the point where the gospel stuff has started. I mean, but yet we're going to have. I don't know. It sort of connotes a sort of a marching to war, children's crusade. What I don't know what's going on, but. Having a rolling snare come in. The third one that I want to get on the board, What You Want From Me, if I'm remembering correctly, the drums get much crazier than I would expect. What You Want From Me, that was on, on the scrape record, right? That's some sneaky stuff because that drum track wasn't actually played. That drum track was built. A friend of mine by the name of Gary Gold co-produced that record with me. He built that drum track. He's an absolute genius at, at making a drum track in a computer. We found those sounds and he made it, it sound like a, it sounded so much like a, I mean, that doesn't sound like it was made up in a machine world. Let's drop that in here so we can hear that firsthand. If you want me to take you 
So that's it's all samples. It's damn that's good some samples. Built up, yeah, that's some samples over samples, and we built a drum kit over some loops. Gary Gold was a genius for that one. I'm trying to remember if if there are horns eventually in this song. I don't. There are horns. There are horns on there. Yes, there are. Yes, but you've also got about three layers of keyboard. You know, clearly where that some of the little fill-ins are like, let me put in a little, you know, put in a little. There's some MIDI stuff going on with that because I had some sounds that was generated and we maybe we can flip the sound around a little bit. But I did put an actual organ on there, a B3, and I put like a Rhodes kind of thing on there. So all of those elements are there. And the bass is me. It's a keyboard bass. It's a synth bass. I played that. Let's hear the transition to the uh, pre-chorus here. If you want me to cheat you every time the game is on I'm trying to do my thing, still it ain't enough The more I get, the more you cheat I'm running out of that funky Alright, yes, they're the wah, wah, our, our little Right, right Lee Farnberg and David Woodford, I believe Were playing horns on that, perhaps And um, 
background singers there. I think it was a uh, Pinkston. Valerie Pinkston was singing on it, along with myself, Bernard Fowler, and Sweet Pea, Sweet Pea Atkinson. God may he rest in peace. Sweet Pea from the um, Was Not Was. Okay. There's some f- places where the bass gets a little funky, where I'm running out of that funky stuff. You do a little thing. like So that's just all you left-handed. That's a key bass. That's okay. me. Yeah, it's key bass. Yeah. The fact that there was a little drum zing to get into that pre-chorus made me think, I mean, either you had a sample that you could tweak. It can't just be, you know, a loop. I guess at this point you wouldn't be 2002. Real, it was drum sounds, like real, as real as you can get with a computer over these loops. So he would pre-placed like actual drum fills. And he made some of that stuff. It's nasty. And we were thinking like about, we were thinking of Zigaboo, Zigaboo with the meters. What would he do if he could uh, manipulate some drum sounds in a computer? <laughs> and that's kind of what we got. Yeah, Eddie thought, I mean, I didn't really give you a chance to say sort of where you were at with this, I guess. All these solo albums are pretty spaced out, right? The one before this was like a decade before this. And then this is the last one. 92, 93 was the last one before that. Scrape was like 2002 or 2003. And yeah, and then this, and this one was 20 years Although what's that. the, I saw, so it was released as Saturday Morning Music 2002 and then Scrape a year later. Well, what happened was my man, Bruce Willis, and, and God bless him, man, he's going through some uh, physical stuff right now that really pains me to talk about. But he was a great help to me. I recorded that record at one of his, his houses up on Mulholland in, in L.A. He, let some, he had a friend build a studio in his house. And it was one of his little cribs that he hung up at up in near Coldwater Canyon in L.A. area. And that's where I recorded that record. So we released that record on a label that Bruce had set up. And it was called Up Top Records because we called that studio Up Top because it was up the hill near Coldwater Canyon, like I said, up, up Mulholland and whatnot. And so Bruce, so it was initially released as Saturday Morning Music. And then Bruce decided to get out of that business. And he didn't really want to have anything to do with the record business right quick. He got a great day job as a, as a movie star. And so he said, yeah, I don't, want, I don't want to deal with this stuff and his people. But he gave me the record. He says, do what, it, what, you, what you want. And I took it and I took it to another company, which I think the company was called Compendia. They re-released it. So I changed the, I changed the title of the record and I changed the album cover. And it's called Scrape. Well, that's much better than some record company dying and taking it, taking you down with it so that you never get to. <laughs> so Bruce said, yeah, go ahead and do what you want to do with that, man. Okay. So this producer that clearly this was a more produced in that you're, you know, somebody sitting at a computer and building the drum part with you. Was this somebody that you came to the project with, or was this sort of one of his house guy, you know, somebody, No, this is a guy, this is a guy. He was affiliated with Bruce at the time. He was uh, um, helping Bruce do, do different stuff. But anyway, he, he and I had met, we had crossed paths over the years and I knew him through some friends. And then we just, we started talking about music. So I'm like, I started going up to the studio, which was at Bruce's house. And I started developing a few songs here and there. And then we ended up doing a full on record. And Bruce was like, Hey, uh, he gave us his blessing. Go ahead and do this record. You got access to this house every day as long as you want until you finish this project. And that's kind of what we did. Yeah, I mean, that's what you were describing is how people make records now in terms of if it's not a home studio, it might be somebody else's home studio, you know, that you got to have that way back in 2002 when I don't think that was as common. 
a thing to just be able to kind of relax and build something instead of feeling like I ha- we have to have this rehearsed as a band or, or, you know. I don't want to go off topic, but this is important stuff. Well, it was at a time, it was an important time in my life as well, because by the way, in 1998, I got sober. I quit doing drugs and drinking and shit in 98. So right around this time, early 2000, I was kind of developing into this new person that I was trying to become. So making this music was very special and it was very challenging. It wasn't like I was just ready to jump out the gates and say, okay, now I don't drink, I don't do drugs anymore. Now I want to make some music. Didn't know really how to make music at that point. I wasn't sure I was going to be able to do it. So that's why me and this guy, Gary, got to, we, we started, we linked up and we were like, yeah, let's, well, come on, let's try some stuff. So I had the luxury of having this place at my disposal and I would just be there and I had no time restraint, no one breathing down my neck saying, hurry up with this and studio times costing you this much money. I was able to just be in there and develop song and make up stuff as I went along. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like the kind of thing you would do with Dumpster Funk, but I don't recall hearing earlier on your solo albums. I mean, was this project sort of the the embryonic stage of like, oh, I'm, I need to start a funk band? Like it Maybe subconsciously, because soon thereafter, I did the first Dumpster Funk gig happened in 2003. And some of the made the repertoire that we had, and it was What You Want From Me, Ugly Truth, and the song Scrape. Those became three of the first live songs that Dumpster Funk would, would go on to perform at our first gigs. And uh, Scrape was one, I played bass on Scrape and on Ugly Truth. And I played two parts on both of those songs. So I was able to incorporate initially the double bass thing, a la Nick Daniels and Tony Hall, which would become the Dumpster Funk sound. And it was based on couple of those songs. And then we had a few other things that we incorporated initially that gave us the flexibility to do stuff like that. But those songs were some of the first in the repertoire of Dumpster Funk. Do you remember in terms of the lyrics of this? Is this a, a personal complaint story or is this just a sort of... I work eight hours a day to buy you eight pairs of shoes. <laughs> I come home and you're on the phone. Show gives me the blues. Get a manicure, a pedicure. Then you're off to the hair salon, and you want me to take you out every time the game is on. (laughs) Trying to do my thing and still it ain't enough. The more I give, the more you take. I'm running out of that funky stuff. Yeah, not not to get to... I'm about to lose my mind. All I want is some quiet time. I'm not trying to pry into your personal life, but if I I write a a complaining song like this and then I play it for my wife, it doesn't go over well. (laughs) I never say it was about... My daughter's mom, not exactly, no, but maybe in general, it probably had come from sometime in the past as well, in my past where people were just getting on my nerves and people were messing with me to do this and do that. And it also was a combination of, like I say, I had just started on this new journey in my Uh life. I had just gotten sober a few years before that. I got sober in 98, 2000, 2001 was when I started working on this music. And so... I was kind of like saying, I guess, leave me alone, let me be, let me be, let me do my thing. I'm trying to adjust here. 
I'm trying to figure out what I'm going. Just give me a break. It was probably to the ex, to, to my daughter's mom's, probably to, at the time, maybe my mom, to a, a small degree, everybody who had maybe been on my back for a while to straighten your shit out. I was finally straightening my stuff out, but I was like, okay, give me some time to adjust to this new thing. Do we have time to throw in, stay what you are, or should we just move right to the... Do we can want- do a little bit of stay. We've got time to stay. We've got time to stay where you are. From your Thanks album, I had it listed as 1995. You're saying it was recorded a, a few years. It was recorded years. in about 93, 94-ish around that time. Yeah. And this has more of that sort of 80s David Fostery, just because the synth sound that sort of doubles the main piano, you know, adds that, that shimmer throughout. Stay where you are. Time's been feeling like you've been leaving what you always want. Just like you'll know better when you're together with who you are. Mama told me, my son, you can't let you help you find out Just what you want, you can't buy Another path which you ride inside your mind's eye Stay where you are Nobody knows what really goes on inside you Cause they don't understand You come so far Dreaming like a child here living in a fairy tale. Surprised that I've been able to make this fable come alive. Just like my father told me, I've been. Don't go looking back at none like what you see.
checking each other out. Nobody wants to blow. Nobody wants to be left out. I, you can't leave 'cause your heart is there, but you're, you can't stay 'cause you've been somewhere else. You can't cry. basic bed for this song this was around for the latter when i was writing the demos and i was writing the songs for ancestors mm. this song was in existence it was it came out of some of that batch but i had never finished it i only had this one little part i had this little dun, 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 dun. i had that and i didn't have all the lyrics and i just had uh we'll stay with you i don't know i had that stuff But I didn't have the lyrics for the verses or the bridge. But I had already done the groove. I had done the main groove. So matter of fact, that was recorded on a 16-track Fostex machine initially. So I took those same uh, tapes and we transferred them. So you're talking late 80s. And now we're going to move it to the early 90s. So we were in New York now with this stuff that was developed in L.A. And there were certain aspects of that song that I didn't want to completely record it all over. There was stuff in that in that original version that I wanted to use. We put new drums on it. George Rossilli played a new drum track over that. There was never live drums on the original. I played bass on that. I played bass and wah-wah guitar. It's me on bass, guitar, and keyboards. And I maybe added, there was some string stuff in there that was on the original version that I tried to recreate. And I'm not sure... I think I added a little bit of stuff to it, but we kept a lot of the original stuff that we, I just couldn't, there was some vibe about it that I couldn't recreate, but I did sing myself and Mr. Bobby Floyd sang the choruses again. And Bobby Floyd helped me write the lyrics. He wrote the verses for me. I had this chorus and I didn't know what to do with it. And Bobby showed up in studio one day. He said, I think I got words for that song. What he wrote was exactly what I would have wanted to write. It was him writing just like my father told me. Was that? He wrote it for me. Like, this is what I think you want to say in this song. Did that immediately give you the idea that you say, it's like my father told me, and then your dad comes in harmonizing? Let me tell you about <laughs> that, which was so special about that verse. When I was recording my dad on that song, my stuff was going on. And he was trying to sing along with me and it wasn't really working out. And I said, okay, let's mute my stuff totally. And Aaron, you just sing. And he just sang. And then when we put my voice back in, it was like a glove. It was so perfect. It was like chill bump city. Oh, wow. How did that happen? The intertwining of my voice and his voice 
He did not hear my voice when he sang those lines in that verse. That makes sense to me because I couldn't imagine how would you react to that and do that? Like, so synchronicity. And he sang, and then we put my voice back and we were like, oh my God. And the rest of it, he sang along with me toward the end and all the vamp stuff. But that verse was specific to the fact that he did not hear my voice when he sang his parts. And that was one of the most special things about that song. And the fact that Bobby Floyd, may, may he rest in peace, he's gone for quite a while now. Bobby Floyd wrote those words like it was something I would have written. Like he wrote them and I looked, I'm like, dang, this is what I wanted to say in this song. How'd you hear this? And it was like so amazing. I was like, okay, this is it. Yeah. Let me ask you about this funky breakdown. Like this is a song, it's pretty tight. I don't want to say a pop song because it's got this, I mean, it sounds like a weird time signature. It's a beat of five and beat of three. No, it's five and three. That means four plus four is eight. (laughs) It's weird, right? I mean, is that one of the things that would make it, oh, I don't know if this can work on the first album because it's not, that makes it not pop enough or something. I don't know. That's a possibility that it was maybe set aside because it didn't have the exact four, four thing. And it wasn't like seemingly accessible at the time. So it got put on the side on the back burner. The song as a whole is so, is like one of the most, you know, beautiful pop things. This should have been everywhere. (laughs) It's one of my favorite ones that I ever wrote. And then when I incorporated the breakdown, like you're talking about, that's the bass. It's me playing bass and me playing wah-wah guitar, which I, that, that was some of my favorite stuff that I ever did playing those other instruments. What is like this? I don't want to say it's a rap because it's not quite a rap, but like, what does it even have to do thematically with the rest of it that you're talking about? That's Family Affair from Sly and the Family Stone. One child, it's in the background. You can't really all the way hear it. I sang a little bit of Family Affair. One child goes up to be somebody who just loved to learn. And... But this newlyweds, newlyweds, you're still checking yeah, each other newlywed, out? Yeah, newlyweds. Yeah, that's, so all, that's from all from Family Affair. Oh, okay. That's so all it's from a, Family Affair with Sly and Family Stone. Sly that's illiteracy right. has come through. No, but that's where that uh, comes from. Yeah. Well, that's so funny to put that in because someone's heard the rest of the song. I mentioned David Foster before, but like this, you know, like the St. Elmo's Fire theme song, like this piano thing with the high tinkly thing on top of it. But you would never insert a Sly fit. I mean, really, there's sneaky funk throughout this whole thing that you have a constant wah wah guitar where a normal producer would not necessarily have, oh, we need wah-wah guitar through this nice ballad or something. Yeah, but like- now you know it's funny. <laughs> that's, that's funny because that was a part I played on the original demo that I, I could never, I left it on there. It was just so cool sounding and it was definitely limited as far as the chords. I didn't hardly play, I didn't play any chords on the guitar that matched the piano. I was playing the, mostly an F note throughout the whole thing. It's the same thing over and over and over again. Maybe changed a little bit in the bridge. I did what I was capable of doing within my limitations on the guitar. All right, before we wrap up here and and let the folks finally hear Hey All Together, which also has your dad and other people doing these vocal. So you just got them in one at a time. And was it the same, like, don't let them hear each other? Or no, it was, it was during the pandemic mostly. And my dad did his at his house. Michael McDonald did his at his studio of, the, of his choice where at, near his house. And Bonnie did hers where, wherever she lives, out in the Bay Area somewhere at her studio with her engineer. Originally, Michael was the first one to sing on the song. 
when you added these four other people, are you having to mute some Michael? No, Michael McDonald happened to be in New Orleans for something. I hit him up and I'm like, hey man, you're going to be in New Orleans? How long are you going to be here? And I said, I got this song. I don't know if, you, if you're interested in maybe helping me out singing on this song. I, I would love to hear how you sounded on this tune. And he said, sure, I'll come by and check it out. And I think I maybe sent him a version of the song and he, and he showed up and he sang. He sang the choruses with me and then he sang on the bridge. And that was mostly it. And then I sent it to Bonnie. And then Bonnie sang what she sang. Michael's voice was there and she heard it. She sang along to that. And she sang a lot of stuff. And I used a little bit. You don't want to use everything. So, you know, sometimes you're very graceful with stuff like that and very picky about what you want to use. And you don't want to, you can't use too much of a, a Miss Bonnie Ray or, or Michael. You want to make sure that it's, it's in there just tastefully enough. Michael texts me back at some point. He says, how's that song going? I'm like, oh, it's going good. He says, you need anything? Let me know. I'm like, well, you know, I wouldn't mind if you sang a few ad-libs. Then he sang this ooh thing in the beginning. Ooh, he sang that in the very intro. I didn't tell him to do that. He put that in there. And then, you know, obviously, Michael McDonald, you're not going to tell him not to do something. So he did what he did. And then I really needed my dad's stuff. Either I couldn't find it or something happened in the transfer of his recording where it didn't come out that well. So I said, I needed him to sing again. I wasn't going to ask him to sing the whole damn song again and sing all this stuff. So I called his engineer guy. And I said, hey, I said, dad, I need you to sing like five things and don't even worry about the words. I need you to do me a few classic Aaron sure. Neville yodel. Yodels. <laughs> like, Whoa! I need a few of those. Just give me wherever you want to put them. Just do them. And I'm going to put them where, where I think they ought to go. And he gave me about five and I kind of put them I, when I edited it and I put them where I thought they would fit. And then, then you got Bonnie, Michael, my dad, then you got trombone shorty playing a little trombone fill in that vamp. So sick, man. Yes. It's a very nicely full song. It does make me, I mean, it's sort of a mini, we are the world, like throw in Willie Nelson, throw in, uh, <laughs> yeah. Now you don't want to get Cheryl Crow on it, but Cheryl, I wanted to get her on it, but she was busy doing some stuff. And I, I couldn't get her on it, but yeah, next time. Featuring the absence of Cheryl Crow. That should be in the in the song title. <laughs> well, this was a real treat listening to all this stuff, and, and I hope the record does well for you. Thank you very much, man. I appreciate it a lot, man. Great talking to you. All right, here's Hey All Together. Time went on. 
Thanks so much to Ivan. My editor, Tyler, had commented that this is one of the few interviews where the guest was as energetic as I was. You can read more about Ivan at IvanNevilleMusic.com and also DumpstaFunk.com. DumpstaFunk is a killer live band, so try to experience that if geographically possible for you. For my next episode, I'm talking to Richard Lloyd, the surviving guitarist from the band Television, who's also backed Matthew Sweet and John Doe and also wrote a memoir that was very interesting. So make sure you're getting your Nakedly Examined Music interviews promptly by subscribing directly to the Nakedly Examined Music feed through the podcast app of your choice. You can find some links to do that at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com or get the ad-free feed at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. And just to remind you, if you use Patreon, you can still listen on the Apple Music app or whatever podcast app you'd like. And in fact, they are releasing integration with Spotify. So you could hear all the episodes promptly, ad-free, with the occasional bit of bonus content and be supporting this effort. I would very much appreciate it. I would also love you to leave a nice rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this and share the episodes to help others learn about what is going on here. I welcome your feedback. Mark at NakedlyExaminedMusic.com if you want to request guests, if you want to put forth yourself as a potential guest. I hope very much you're doing well. The summer is wrapping up okay for you. Keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Linsenmeyer signing off.